listening to the Plugged In Podcast, presented by the Institute for Energy Research. To find out more about our work, visit our website at instituteforenergyresearch.org. Welcome to the Plugged In Podcast from the Institute for Energy Research. I'm Jordan McGillis. Today we're joined by Jason Crawford. Jason is the author of The Roots of Progress, where he writes about the history of technology and of industry. He spent 18 years in the tech industry. He was co-founder and CEO of the startup Fieldbook and has been a software engineering manager at Amazon, Flexport, and Groupon. Jason, thanks for coming on with us. Thanks a lot for having me. So most of our guests here on this podcast work at uh, Washington think tanks or they're at universities. Very few have actual private sector experience um, like you do, and, and very few start their own projects like you've done. Uh, so why don't you tell our listeners about the roots of progress and how you um, came to take on that project? Sure. So uh, I started the Roots of Progress because I think too many people take progress for granted. Um, I think uh, too many people are unaware of or simply don't appreciate how far we've come, uh, how much our standard of living and our our ability to live our lives uh, has improved in the last uh, couple hundred years, and really how historically anomalous all of that is. So um, I kind of started the project, I, I mean, I began it as a, really as, as simply a few years ago, I, I started it as a personal side project. It was a hobby in the beginning. I wanted to learn this story and understand it better for myself. Um, and I wanted to do it as, as a way of reexamining the foundations of my worldview and what I think is important in the world. Um, but it became, uh, I became completely obsessed with it after a couple of years. And when I left, left my last job in the software industry, uh, in the tech industry, I decided to uh, spend full time on this research and writing project. Um, I want to change the way people see the world. I want people to look around at the world and see, uh, you know, every every uh, thing around them that was made by human beings and realize that every single one of those things is actually a solution to a problem, a solution to a problem of living that uh, that we had in the past that someone looked at and decided to solve and then did the hard work to actually solve and, and to distribute that solution. And so I, you know, I want people to, I, I think when people look around at the, the modern world, they should just be in awe of what we've accomplished. And I think, again, you know, too many people don't know the history or, or just sort of take it for granted. And uh, if we take progress for granted, we are eventually going to lose it. Um, progress is not automatic or inevitable. It is something we need to cherish. We need to understand its underpinnings uh, what causes it, and you know, we need to continually resolve in every new generation to uh, keep moving it forward. And that's really what my project is all about. It sounds like the central consideration you have in mind is problem solving. But at, at some of these events I've gone to that you've hosted in San Francisco, where both of us uh, live, one of the topics of discussion is always, well, what do we mean by progress? So can you get into the nitty-gritty of how you define that and, and conceive of it? Yeah. Progress is anything that uh, that helps us live our lives better. I, I judge progress by a humanistic standard, so the standard of human life, uh, health, and happiness thriving and flourishing. Uh, so, on a material level, right? Progress you can think of te- progress in in the sense of technological and economic progress. Um, more technology, more wealth, more infrastructure, uh, more ability to control the physical world around us. You can also think of it uh, from the standpoint of science and knowledge, right? More, more knowledge, more uh, data, more theories, a better understanding of our world. 
Um, and I also think about uh, progress in politics and society, uh, more peace, more freedom, more universal rights. Um, and all three of those, uh, technology, uh, science, and politics are really bound up together in the overall story of human progress over the ages. So obviously related to our work at IER, um, we do a lot of work in energy, obviously, and natural resources. Um, what's your view of uh, the role that natural resources play in progress? Yeah, I think the most important thing to understand is that the term natural resources is a bit of a misnomer. Um, in in a, an important sense, there's no such thing as a natural resource. All resources are artificial in that all resources are only resources by benefit of somebody uh, and and some industry recognizing their use and understanding how to use them. So, uh, you know, they're, they're the things that we consider the most important natural resources today, such as oil or uh, uh, sand and silicon in, in many ways, uh, you know, a couple hundred years ago, people didn't know how to use these things. There was oil just sitting on the top of ponds and oozing out of the ground in certain areas, uh, you know, 150, 200 years ago. And all that people did with it was maybe skim it off to make torches or use as pitch or, uh, you know, it wasn't driving a, a, a fundamental resource. Uh, it, it wasn't a resource driving a fundamental industry. Another way to look at this, by the way, and, and I think an important thing for people to understand mm. is that um, all resources come to us in a highly inconvenient form. Um, there's basically nothing that nature delivers to us up on a silver platter uh, other than perhaps the oxygen and the air that we breathe, which is, you know, ready for use. Uh, but, you know, water does not come to us in the form that we want. The water is dirty uh, or it's full of salt and we have to clean it. Uh, oil does not come to us in the form that we want. You know, oil comes to us in the form of crude oil, which is uh, which needs to be refined and distilled into, uh, you know, into different fractions. Uh, uh, metal ore does not come to us in the form that we want. I mean, metal itself, you know, would be nice to find just sort of like lumps of iron, let's say, sitting around in the ground that we could just use, but it, it doesn't come to us in that form. It comes to us in the form of iron ore. And even iron ore doesn't come to us as, as pure iron ore. It's mixed together with contaminants like sulfur and phosphorus that we have to get rid of. So, um, all of these things have to go through uh, processes to make use of them. And again, that uh, depends on knowledge, technology, and infrastructure, and, and is another important way in which there's, again, there's, there's really no such thing as a natural resource. I've been listening to a, a lecture series from Professor Patrick Allett uh, through the great courses on the Industrial Revolution. And something that comes out in that series um, are some of these uh, economic valuations questions regarding resources and the fact that, for example, in um, British North America in the year 1685, um, timber was just in such abundance that it was really a nuisance. You would have to pay someone to cut timber down to create more usable land, uh, whereas in other parts of the world, they, they need that greatly. And that's, that's an intricate part of this story is um, that we really have just natural the natural products of the world, um, but they mean nothing until they become of value through some human creative process. Yeah, absolutely. Another aspect of, of the Industrial Revolution discussion um, that one of our vice presidents is fond of pointing out is that the Industrial Revolution can be thought of as an energy revolution with the uh, explosion of coal usage and the steam engine being such integral parts um, of that rapid onset of development. What can you tell us about how those things 
came to be such um, staples of of the early modern economy, if you will. Yeah, um, I think energy was extremely important to the Industrial Revolution. I think sometimes it is overplayed. So um, uh, since this is an energy podcast related podcast, let me maybe first give the caveat about um, how how energy is sometimes maybe given too central a role, and then but then let's talk a bit about the importance of energy because it absolutely is fundamentally important. Um, when people you know think about the Industrial Revolution, they often uh, pin it. You know, it's it's always difficult to give a start date to any uh, historical period, especially something that kind of crept up on us gradually, like the Industrial Revolution did. It's not like a war that has an explosive beginning. Um, but uh, you know, people often point to uh, the 1760s when James Watt created the uh, separate condenser for the steam engine and made it much more efficient, and um, you know, things really took off from there. Certainly in the early Industrial Revolution, uh, coal and steam uh, were, were two extremely important technologies that, uh, that reinforced each other and made each other uh, possible and led to a lot of other things. So, you know, this, but, but people can put, I think, a little bit too much emphasis uh, on just the coal and the steam engine as if that was kind of the one thing that everything else took off from. And uh, the fact is that there were a lot of things going on in the 1700s. Um, so long before uh, James Watt and the separate condenser, you had the beginnings, for instance, of the textile revolution. Uh, so the, uh, in, in cotton production, um, spinning and, and weaving and so forth, there were you know, a, a number of a, a very important inventions that started to automate and mechanize uh, textile production. And those things... Uh, were ultimately joined with the steam engine, uh, I think, towards the end of the 1700s or maybe early 1800s, you got the power loom. So uh, you have these uh, these kind of other things in uh, pottery, for instance, uh, Hosea Wedgwood and other uh, pioneers mm. in, in clay and pottery were experimenting with new methods and new techniques. Uh, so there were all kinds of things going on uh, and, and, and all kinds of – in agriculture, you know, you had people experimenting with, um, with animal husbandry and breeding and, and new crop rotations. Um, you had, uh, uh, you know, Jethro Tull inventing the seed drill. So there was all these things going on, um, and, they, and, and so it was not purely an energy revolution. I think it was a – there's actually a much deeper – cultural revolution that was going on, or indeed that had been going on for, for centuries before uh, the nominal start of the Industrial Revolution. The Industrial Revolution is really the time when uh, this, the kind of improving mentality, that uh, this, this idea that we should experiment and, uh, and, and try things and be very systematic in our experimentation and seek to improve the way that we do things, that, that mentality had really taken hold Definitely, I would say by the 1600s, maybe even earlier, you can trace some of the intellectual roots of it back to people like uh, Francis Bacon in the 1500s. Um, so I think there was this, this movement building for a long time, um, and, uh, and, and it was really starting to come to fruition in the 1700s, and uh, new methods and, and inventions were kind of cropping up all over the place. So it's a mistake to pin everything just on the steam engine as if Coal and steam were kind of the, the single route from which everything uh, flowed. However, energy is absolutely uh, fundamental uh, of importance in an economy. You, so you can see this by just – you just look trace all the kind of ways that um, – all the major areas of technology and production, and you can see that uh, 
that powered machinery, you know, started affecting almost all of them. Um, so in terms of, uh, you know, resource extraction, that was the very first application of steam engines. Even before James Watt in 1712, you had the very first steam engine uh, of, of worthy of the name by Thomas Newcomen, and it was invented to pump, you know, water out of mines. So it was applied to, to resource extraction. Uh, once Watt had his more designed his more efficient uh, steam engine and, and smaller and more compact version, it started getting applied to um, you know to to all kinds of you know factories. And um, again, I mentioned the power loom that applied to sawmills and and uh, uh, iron forges and things like that. Um, and then of course it got applied to transportation. So we got powered transportation. We got the steamboat and the locomotive. Um, it got applied to agriculture as we got, uh, you know, steam tractors and, and other agricultural machinery. And, and so you can just sort of see how it, it was this fundamental thing because it affected pretty much every area of the economy. Um, and, and, and really, every time we've had a major revolution in energy, um, oil, electricity, and so forth, you know, all of these things have been absolutely transformative, just, you know, changing the way that we do things across the, the entire economy. So energy absolutely is fundamental, right? It's how we, it's how we move things around in the world. It's how we apply mechanical force. Um, it even, it can be how we generate heat uh, for uh, chemical processes. Uh, so it does have this very fundamental uh, effect on everything that we do. That is so true. You make really good points there. And I love that you referenced Francis Bacon his, his mentality, of course, is that in order for us to, to actually have um, effect on the world and to, to make progress, we need to first understand and obey the, the laws of nature. And that um, carried through in, in the British context where we really saw this flowering. And one of the great questions in history is why that took place there. So were, were, were these just extraordinary people? Were there certain circumstances, political institutions that um, enabled these gains to be made. Uh, it's very speculative, but do you care to comment on the centrality of, of the British Isles in, in the progress that we then saw come to be? That is a whole enormous field of academic work and debate, and um, I don't think I can settle on a podcast. I mean, honestly, I don't think I have the full answer. It's a really interesting question. It's something that lots of people have come up with lots of answers to. Um, I do... I mean, my personal hunch is that it does have something to do with um, with cultural uh, factors. Uh, maybe not that alone, but I think those factors are significant in um, the way that people approach uh, this experimentation. With, uh, I mean, you can you can ask the question a few different ways, right? So one is, why did it happen in the West, in Europe? Um, rather than say in China, which was uh, ahead of you know other regions, ahead of the West and other regions in technology in many ways. I mean, you know, a lot of a lot of important technologies that the West developed, actually China had done like hundreds of years earlier, or in some cases, you know, a thousand years or more earlier. Um, so this is, I mean, this like that alone is kind of a, a whole area of academic research. The China question: Why why didn't they pull ahead? And uh, and then once you look at uh, Europe in particular, you can also ask, well, okay, why was it, um, you know, the British who were ahead, um, and, and and you know, why wasn't it the Dutch? Why wasn't it the um, the Germans or the Portuguese or the French or the Spanish or the Italians or whatever? 
And I think that is very interesting. You can see, if you look over the whole of European history, you can see that, uh, you, you know, if you, uh, if you wanted to you know, think of it as a, as, a, as a race almost, you can imagine different countries kind of pulled ahead at, at different points in the, you know, at a certain point, maybe the 1400s, uh, you know, Venice was like the place to be. Uh, and you had, you know, you had Florence and these kind of, um, uh, so you have this Italian Renaissance. And then, you know, at a certain point, the Portuguese started exploring the world and, and, uh, and started establishing global trade. And for a little while, they were taking over and kind of, um, you know, almost almost taking over, starting to take over the world, um, and then the Dutch pulled ahead of them a century later, and then the kind of the British took over global trade um, a century after that. So there's this kind of there's these kind of swings uh, from one place to another in terms of uh, you know which which one has the lead. Um, economic historian Anton Howes has been doing some work on um, England uh, and Britain in particular. Uh, he makes the claim that the really crucial century uh, was actually from about mid-1500s to mid-1600s, uh, earlier than most people think. Uh, a lot of people, when they're looking at kind of England pulling ahead, they look a little bit later. Um, uh, Howes has this interesting uh, sort of contention that uh, if you looked at England in, the, in 1550, let's say, they would really, it would really look almost like a backwater of Europe, or, or certainly it wouldn't look like the leading light of Europe. And and even a century later, you can you can start to see them pulling ahead in, in certain areas. So I think that's really interesting to look at. You know, I mean, one thing I I'm not even confident enough in this to say this is, you know, a, a significant part of the answer. But just one thing that I think is really interesting is that you know the British kind of have this reputation for among Europeans, they have this reputation for being kind of very empirical and very incrementalist, almost disdaining theory. Um, and uh, although not completely, I don't think that's completely accurate. But in terms of, uh, you know, wanting to make progress on things, just sort of doing a lot of tinkering, experimentation, uh, being happy with kind of like very slow incremental advances, um, as opposed to, uh, you know, the French deservedly or not have a, a sort of reputation of being much more theoretical, um, but maybe less uh, practical. So I think that's kind of an interesting, you know, avenue to look down. But I don't, I don't have a final answer. It's a very interesting question. Um, so changing gears slightly here, uh, in the modern context, there is this mentality we see in our field in, in energy policy that centers on a notion of an energy transition being underway from uh, what we would consider tried and true energy um, dense sources like natural gas, oil, and coal to what people tend to think of as renewable resources. And um, those people that talk of an energy transition will often postulate that places like India have the capability of bypassing entirely uh, the various stages of development that we've gone through in the United States and in other industrialized countries. And they can leap directly into um, a lower, lower emitting economy. Do you have any thoughts on that? I mean, not an expert on that. Uh, it's certainly true that, um, you know, areas do sometimes leapfrog uh, technologies in that if they if they kind of come up from behind a bit, they can skip over what was an incremental step. I think uh, we certainly have seen this happen in some areas with computer and, and telephone technology, for instance, with some places kind of jumping over landlines and going straight to uh, and, and desktop and laptop computers and going straight to um, uh, cell phones and smartphones. 
I think you saw a bit of this with uh, America in its early days. Uh, so if you look at the U.S. versus Britain, you know, Britain had a lot of things kind of entrenched. And I think there were some ways in which in the first century or so of, of uh, you know, U.S. development that that we were able to maybe make some leapfrogs. Uh, one thing in particular I'm, I'm thinking of, although it may not be the central example, but business machinery, there was a booming uh, kind of industry in the late 1800s of business machines, including mathematical machines that were sort of the forerunners of computers, adding machines, calculating, tabulating, and so forth, and typewriters, filing systems. And uh, as I recall, these were booming in America in part just because it was kind of a green field. Um, uh, whereas, you know, businesses in, in Britain were already a little more established and maybe set in their ways. So, you know, that sort of thing can certainly happen. The, the question in my mind is, you know, the, the technologies that people maybe in, in terms of energy technologies, I, I would just sort of ask, well, these, these energy technologies that people are saying uh, that a country like India might leapfrog to, are they actually um, are they actually what India needs, and to what extent are they to what extent are they necessities, and to what extent are they are they luxuries? I think some uh, you know some energy technologies that the West is enamored of are in a certain sense luxury technologies in that they're actually more expensive, but they uh, they maybe satisfy people's uh, desire to have something that's quote unquote green or clean or or renewable, and that may not actually be you know the that may not actually be the thing that an emerging economy uh, needs, right? In general, I mean, in, um, uh, environmental concerns, I think, tend to, you know, tend to be a luxury concern. They tend to be something that, that people get concerned about after they're already, like, relatively wealthy and prosperous. Um, uh, and, yeah, and I, while I they're certainly still share your skepticism themselves, Yeah, while they're still pulling themselves up out of poverty, right, they generally don't even have, um, you know, con uh, the, the, the resources to be concerned about that kind of thing. Mm -hmm. I think it's right to be uh, wary of this, the sorts of motivations that we see from environmentalists that seem to be putting on a par uh, people's standard of living here today in the year 2020 with um, a long-range consideration of climatic systems that, that may or may not affect people in 75, 125, 150 years. Related to that, how do you conceive of pollution? And um, is that something that you think is exacerbated by, solved by? Um, how does it fit into the progress and technology story? Yeah. I mean, historically, pollution is something that was, you know, essentially first exacerbated, then solved um, in, in many cases by technology. Uh, this is not a story I know deeply, but, uh, you know, certainly as uh, with with economic growth in the especially, you know, 1600s, 1700s, a, a lot more economic activity going on and basically just sort of using old methods of production, which involved a lot of burning of a lot of very unclean things. Um, you know, going back a little bit to what I mentioned before, nature gives us resources always in very inconvenient form. We would love to have uh, fuel that we could just dig out of the ground that burns, you know, completely cleanly. There's absolutely, you know, there's no benefit to all of the pollutants that are in, you know, coal that we dig out of the ground, for example. Um, a, a cleaner coal is actually just sort of more beneficial from a, um, 
uh, from an industrial standpoint because it's more pure fuel, which is what you want. The other stuff's just getting in the way. But nature doesn't give us, uh, you know, uh, just sort of clean, pure fuel, certainly not in the form of carbon or anything that you can just dig out of the ground. So, uh, you know, the earlier uh, processes were processes that would just burn stuff coming out of the ground or, or, or that we cut down, whether that's wood or coal or whatever. And um, uh, burning things leads to a lot of smoke uh, and a lot of soot. And, you know, London famously had a problem with this. And um, I don't remember when the peak of the problem was, I think sometime around 16, 1700. So, yeah, I mean, um, uh, virtually all processes produce some sort of waste. Certainly all, all uh, industrial processes, even biological processes, right, produce waste. And um, so as you uh, kind of naively ramp up uh, processes, that is a form of progress, but it also creates a, a kind of a side problem, which is, which is the pollution. Uh, this is true. So, I mean, just to step back for a moment, I think it's important to realize this is basically true of, of, of all progress. Every time we solve problems, it creates new ones. This is seen by some people as a uh, uh, as sort of proof that we're not actually making progress or that we shouldn't try because they point to kind of the new problems that are created. Uh, but it's really just in the nature of progress. I think um, David Deutsch made this point very well in his book, The Beginning of Infinity. Just like all problems create new problems. That's just the nature of problem solving. The, the good thing about it is usually you solve a big problem and you replace it with a smaller problem. But there will always be a frontier of problems. And that just means that progress is not a static thing. It's not a, you know, it, it, it's not progression towards some sort of static state where all problems are solved and everything's fine. Progress is dynamic. It is ever changing it is ever moving um it is i just i think of it as an expanding frontier and it's very much analogous to and, and intertwined with the expanding frontier of knowledge you know in science when we answer questions by saying well this just leaves us with more questions uh well of course it does that's how knowledge works there's an ever expanding frontier of knowledge and every time we answer a question we open new ones and very similarly there is an ever expanding frontier of progress and every time we solve problems um, it creates new ones for us to deal with. That's okay. We just, we, we don't solve that, you know, in 99% of cases, we don't solve that by, by rolling back. We, we solve it by moving forward. And we move forward typically with, um, with more progress, with, with more technology, with solutions uh, to the new problems that, that make our world better. And to a large extent, you know, that's what we've done um, with pollution as well in, you know, in many, many ways um, from finding cleaner fuels to, um, you know, scrubbing, uh, you know, to remove things from the air and water. Uh, you know, there's all sorts of ways that we deal with this, but but we do, and the world is cleaner now than it was um, at the height. That's an interesting formulation. I don't think I've heard that before uh, regarding the solving of problems, creating some new problems. Now, one thing that I'm wary of is taking a utilitarian style perspective on these questions. I think it's crucial that when we do accept that solving problems can create new problems, we think about who it's creating those new problems for. And one of the enormous flaws, in my view, of the progressive era, um, which I, I doubt you want to associate the name of your blog with, but some might, um, is that it often biased our, our legal system in favor of industrialization uh, at the expense of some small um, less powerful property owners who uh, were basically discounted because the greater good was served, allegedly, by permitting um, industrial runoff and that sort of thing, uh, when there could have potentially been a 
legitimate common law property rights solution to some of these property conflicts that arise from the waste process. That's really interesting. I don't know that history, and I would love to uh, hear about examples of, of that kind of thing. I tend to agree that there are a number of problems in our history that could have been solved better than they were with a better understanding of an application of, of, of ideas of, of rights and especially property rights. I, I also think that those solutions are, uh, are, are difficult. I mean, there's the even a even a framework such as property rights doesn't provide easy answers. I think it um, uh, as as technology changes, as society changes, um, sort of new problems arise, and you have you know things that you didn't even things that you didn't even uh, consider before. And uh, you know, law and thinking thinking about law and our conception of rights has to evolve along with that. Um, I mean, just one example. I was I was just reading about the evolution of property rights in land uh, in the context of agriculture, and the clash that happened when um, uh, you know European settlers were quote unquote buying, purchasing land from the uh, you know Native American Indian tribes, and they just had completely different concepts of essentially what it meant to own land. In that the you know the tribes that were here before didn't uh, you know many of them uh, did not have permanent settlements they were uh, some form of of you know nomads and so they were uh, or, or or hunting and gathering um, I mean some of them did have agriculture and some had permanent settlements but not all of them did and so some of them you know to to them the notion of a property right uh, in land was you have sort of you know temporary ability to maybe come through and hunt uh, here or, uh, you know, gather um, in the woods, but nothing like a permanent settlement, clearing land for agriculture, et cetera. And then the Europeans came in and their concept of, of ownership was, uh, you know, permanent settlement of the land or even, you know, freeholding where you, you, you own the land outright, almost the way you own a, uh, you know, a, a pot or a pan or a, or a uh, you know, a pair of pants, a, a, an item of property, it's yours. Uh, completely to do with 100% all the time, and so those you know those very notions of property rights conflicted, and I think there can be a very similar thing when you know what happens when you have a stream, and then uh, you know the very first time somebody decides to build a dam uh, in the river or uh, or put a water mill on it or for that matter dump something into the river. You know today we're facing a lot of questions around things like data. What does it mean to own your data? What data of yours do you own? You know, what, what kind of rights can you, can you sensibly have in that sort of thing? And we can't just apply, you know, you can never just by rote apply uh, the kind of models that have worked for things in the past and just apply them unthinkingly to or, or uh, you know, in some very straightforward direct application to new cases. Uh, you have to kind of think through these things from first principles, you know, in, within a, uh, a framework of political and legal philosophy. Certainly. And these questions have have no easy answer. There is not going to be an answer handed down from God on a tablet for us. We, we have to deliberate amongst our societies on what it means to have a property right. And um, ultimately, it, how we maintain those is going to rest upon our ability to, per, to persuade others of our view of what, what that means. Now, to refer back to my point about the progressive era, my introduction to that uh, that concern came from the, uh, the writer Fred Smith, who was the president of the Competitive Enterprise Institute. He wrote an essay that's titled The Progressive Era's Derailment 
of classical liberal evolution. And it really goes into detail on, on some of these cases of the, the so-called common good being the standard for um, legal judgments. And uh, once again, for our listeners, that, that essay is The Progressive Era's Derailment of Classical Liberal Evolution. Highly recommend it. But those questions really do keep me up at night. They're so challenging. And you bring up a good one regarding the, the clash of, of ideas with the settlement of Europeans on the North American continent. Uh, but we still face this every day when we, when we discuss questions of um, pollution and what constitutes an infringement on someone else's rights when we're dealing with something like air or water. And it's very easy for us to say, oh, well, we, I take the Lockean view on property, but really thinking through how uh, in, in close detail what that boundary is going to be and how things can change and, and uh, what grounds there are for a little bit of give and take is really difficult to come to firm conclusions on. Yeah. So, Jason, what, uh, what big, exciting things are you working on? And what do you have coming down the pike? Yeah, well, I have just uh, begun in the last week or two uh, an investigation into the history of agriculture, which is something I've not uh, touched on very much uh, at all so far. And obviously, like super deeply important to, uh, to human life and to the, the economy and to, to industry is how we feed ourselves. Um, the uh, resources on this are very difficult. I'm, I was a little surprised to discover that there doesn't seem to be a, a kind of one volume, uh, you know, thing written for the, for the general public of just how did this evolve? How did we learn to feed ourselves? And, you know, given that it wasn't that long ago on a historical time scale that Famine was relatively common, even in you know in the in the richest countries. Um, uh, and now today, the the problem is exactly the opposite, right? We have so much food, uh, and it's so abundant and and delicious that we actually have to restrain ourselves from eating too much. I mean, we've replaced we've essentially replaced the famine problem with the obesity problem. Uh, another one of these examples of how every problem creates new problems, but they're you know they're they're less bad than the the previous ones, and you learn how to solve them. Um, hopefully, we learn how to solve the obesity problem with better nutrition science at some point in the future. But yeah, so this is uh, is very interesting to me, and I've just started. You know, I'm just I'm just three quarters of the way through one book on the topic. I've started blogging about it uh, on my blog, The Roots of Progress. I've been writing sort of some brief informal posts uh, several times a week about what I'm learning and kind of my open questions. And so, if you want to follow my uh, epistemological journey as I research this topic. Um, you can you can follow me there on the blog. All right, this has been riveting, Jason, uh, and I'm, I'm sure our listeners would love to keep up with you online. Can you remind us where they can find your work and um, if you have a Twitter handle, where they can find you there? Yeah, that's right. So my blog is rootsofprogress.org, um, and you can follow me on Twitter. My handle is Jason Crawford. And the blog itself has a uh, has a Twitter account alone too, and it's it's Roots of Progress on Twitter. All right, terrific. Our guest today has been Jason Crawford. Thanks, Jason. Thank you so much. This was a good conversation.